This is the Pro-America Report on The Answer San Diego. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Ed Martin here in a Pro-America Report. And I am glad to be with you. It is a wonderful new week, a million things happening. In a few moments, we'll talk with James Reston Jr. And it's a second interview with him. James Reston, he's written over 18 books. I think it's 18 books total. I shouldn't say over 18 because it's either 19 or 20, but he's written a lot of books. And the newest one is called The 19th Hijacker. And we talked to him before about this, but this is coming out um, in, in this year. Uh, the 20th anniversary of the 9-11. And I actually haven't happened to know some news about this, that it, it may end up being a movie. Um, so we'll talk with James Reston Jr. in a few moments. And uh, But let me tell you, uh, over the weekend, there was, of course, the Trump rally, and there was lots to it. Although I have to tell you, and just to be honest with you, um, y- you know, at a certain point, I would watch a lot of any Trump rally. I would just sort of make it my you know, kind of uh, mission to cross paths with the rally. And in fact, in this case, I just did not do that. It was a Saturday. There was a lot going on. I I had to go pick up my son from uh, camp that he was at with some of his friends from school. So it was a busy day. So I didn't see much of it live. So then I saw clips and I saw the crowd and all. And I have to say, it was a weird feeling. Now I'm going to tell you something. And, and, um, this will be a funny connection, but it'll get us to the what I want to talk about with the wink today. And by the way, please visit ProAmericaReport.com, ProAmericaReport.com, and you can sign up for the daily wink there, which is a daily email that goes out every morning at 8 a.m. East Coast, 5 a.m. Pacific time, and goes in your email, in my email box right there. Boom, all the things you need to know, some kind of key articles, key things, key topics right there. And uh, also, you can re- review any of these great interviews. We're having so many great guests, so many authors, so many political players. Um, so... Here's the thing. I, I felt on January 6th as, I, as 6th, as I sat in the second row at the Ellipse listening to President Trump speak, and there were, I don't know, half a million people behind me and around me, and it was because the president was there, and because technically we're on the White House grounds, the way the Ellipse is, it was a very controlled environment. You could see back to the Washington Monument, and it was, but here's the thing. When, I, when that speech ended, it was a rambling speech of the president's. It wasn't as tight a speech. When it ended, as I walked away, I was with a friend of mine, and um, I felt like it was kind of a valedictory. It felt like an ending point. It felt like, okay, you know, there was nothing that was going to change the trajectory. The Constitution was going to kick in. No matter what your concerns were, you sort of were moving on. And that's how I felt. And then, of course, everything that happened afterwards and, and then how the media has just supercharged this is just unbelievable. Um, and, and really, we'll talk about that in a second and, and how incredibly powerful the big media, big tech, and the big government is and what they're doing to our country. Uh, but, I, but that feeling I had was kind of like, wow, this is a kind of ending point. You know, there was a, there were, had been a whole bunch of us that said, utilize the Constitution. We had a sense that there was nothing more that was going to be done. There were challenges, but it wasn't going to lead anywhere. And um, that's kind of how I feel. Funny, I don't feel the same um, intensity of the Trump rally that I did before. And I'm just describing it to you. I'm just telling you. And I've, I've talked to other people about it. Now, he's still so potent on the key issues, right? On immigration, on build the wall. He, President Trump's never been more uh, sort of sort of obviously fit for the moment. And his intensity and his um, energy is so significant, you kind of feel like, wow, this guy is, uh, by comparison to Biden. 
But that's all warm up to say. He did talk about the election. He talked about uh, the problems in the election. In his own way, he directed people towards, you know, Arizona, where the audit's finishing and all. But I just want to, and he did talk about how uh, wild the um, coverage had been of the January 6th commission and all this stuff. And I just want to point out to you uh, what one of you sent me was that on Thursday, last Thursday, there was an interview with the um, with the FBI director, Ray. And W-R-A-Y, Ray, Director Ray was before, I think it was the House Intelligence Committee, which is such a misnomer. And Eric Swalwell is on that one. You know, the guy that has had it made clear that he was having an affair with a Chinese spy, actually a spy, not just a Chinese national or something, but a spy. And um, so here we are. And Swalwell asks um, Ray about January 6th. And he wants, it's a setup. He wants the dramatic language. And Ray concedes that it was not an insurrection in front of, in front of the world and on TV. And so he says that. And my point here is that sane people, and I think Chris, uh, Christopher Ray hasn't been a great FBI director, but I don't think he's insane. I think people that like M- Milley, General Milley does not seem well. He seems mentally imbalanced or politically craven. It may just be politically craven when he says that, you know, he's a, he really wants to get into white uh, rage and wants to study it. But Ray's admission, it got no coverage. And, and my point here is that more and more people tell me, and I got an email from a friend of mine overseas who's living in Italy. And he said, you know, I can't believe, don't you see what's happened with January 6th? And I said, do you know the facts? You know, a friend of uh, mine who's uh, in law enforcement, he said one of his friends uh, who he went to school with, he, this friend of mine who's a, a pretty high level law enforcement guy, he was, uh, I think he did business school before he went to be in the, uh, in law enforcement. And, um, his buddy who he's in business school with said, you know, don't you think, you know, we need to get to the bottom of this. And my friend in law enforcement said, look, he's like, there were some people that did some dumb things, but there's no, there's nobody that is serious that there was insurrection. There's nobody that was serious that there was a plan to take over as general Milley said to, to uh, override the constitution. The people that were protesting that were marching in Washington were protests and saying, invoke the Constitution. The Constitution had these provisions and you could protest and the Congress could consider it. And we think there's enough reason to worry. Shouldn't we do this? And so it's the opposite of uh, an insurrection. And yet the big tech and big media and now big government is just swooping over this country and it's brainwashing people through big media. It's changing their brains through big tech and big government is on the march. Now I will pause and tell you that I was away from, I mentioned I went to pick my son up in, up in Pittsburgh and I saw this friend of mine and he is in law enforcement. He said, after uh, January 6th, a bunch of the FBI and a bunch of the U S attorneys started saying, round up all kinds of people that were just in Washington. They were supposed to pick up people that were just in Washington, meaning you know, not necessarily arrest them, but pick them up to question them. And and the law enforcement people said, what are you talking about? We, we don't have a reason to do that. We're not doing that. And there was pushback from the state police. There was pushback from the FBI. Now, uh, it's anecdotal. I, I didn't have this guy under oath, but he had no reason to lie to me. He's actually, uh, I guess he's conservative, but he's not um, He's not a political type. He's more of just a, a, law, a, a pro-law enforcement type. But my point here is we are living in a nation that is being divided rapidly between the people that believe one set of facts and people that believe another set. And I'm just describing this to you now. There are people in this country, 30%, 40%, that will swear up and down that there was an insurrection, that a guy with a helmet 
and and tattoos and a half naked uh, sort of mental look like a mentally ill New Yorker were going to somehow take over the government. That that you know, insurrection is not like oh, a protest where you commit vandalism. Insurrection is a plan to take over the government. And remember, Christopher Ray admitted it didn't happen. He said it was not what happened. And yet we're living with the power of the media telling that to people and having them believe it. It's really quite terrifying. And you'll notice, as I said before, we now have Nancy Pelosi creating a select committee, as I predicted. She first would try to have a House, a bipartisan committee and get it through the House and Senate so that it would have the sheen of bipartisanship. Now, when she couldn't get that, she's going to do a House select committee. And it will be Adam Schiff, Eric Swalwell, and it will be like the Mueller investigation weaponized again by the power of what? Big government, big media, and big tech, the narrative machine. It's, it really is the greatest threat to the American Republic right now is the combination of those three that are creating this narrative, that are driving a narrative. Again, I'm not even arguing about which is true. I have my own opinion. You could probably tell it. I'm saying that right now we have 40 percent of the country who is being driven to believe something that is not true. And actually their own side or I don't know Christopher Ray is not on their side, but Christopher Ray is saying it's not true. It's extraordinary to see. All right. We'll take a break. And when we come back, we'll talk with James Reston, Jr. about his book, The 19th Hijacker from Republic Book Publishers and a lot more. It's Ed Martin here in a Pro-America Report. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Many of my listeners have been uh, have been following my, uh, I'm like a fan of the Republic Book Publishers and so many of their authors. In fact, earlier this week, Jim Hansen was on. It was phenomenal. Uh, if you go to republicbookpublishers.com, you'll see all the different authors. Uh, I am like a, I'm a devotee of uh, John Cribbs, whose book is Old Abe, which is really, really good. But the guy behind this, well, one of two guys behind this is Al Regnery, who has a great history in publishing and in conservative uh, leadership for decades and decades. And so as we talk about Republic Book Publishers, which is interesting enough, uh, the real topic, uh, Al, that I want to ask you about is this cancel culture, because you've lived through the ebb and flow of different periods of time where, you know, um, there'll be scrutiny of, of popular authors. In just a few moments, you know, I'll have Martin Dugard on, who's written these books with Bill O'Reilly, and Bill O'Reilly got canceled or maybe maybe just got uh, in trouble, whatever you'd say it. But this ebb and flow, there, there's been nothing like this, what we're going through right now in terms of, of cancel culture and scrutiny of conservatives and, frankly, I think the effectiveness of it. And I thought, uh, let's ask Al his perspective. So welcome, Al Regnery, and and um, what do you think of the moment we're in? Well, thank you, Ed. Great to be with you, as always. Um, it's it's uh, difficult. I mean, it's basically what, what the problem is, is that most book publishing in this country is dominated by five huge companies, four of which are right. owned outside the United States. And two of the big ones, Random and, and Random House and Simon Schuster, in the, are in the um, midst of, of a merger trying to, to, to combine, which they will do, into one ma- massive company. They are part of the right. media, and they are basically, um, the employees are largely lefties, um, and they publish 
a few conservative books, primarily if you've got if you've got an author that's a celebrity and has a platform, you know, they're going to sell a lot of books, so they do that. But for the most part, on thoughtful books, on a lot of conservative books, on authors that are not celebrities, they want nothing to do with it. And it, it we used to be that way back in you no know, in the seventies and the eighties, I guess. And then they discovered um, when I was running regularly publishing my family's business. Um, we started publishing bestseller after bestseller. They recognized that there was some money to be made here, so they started these imprints. Mm-hmm. They accept them down for the most part now um, because it's just the thing to do, you know, and they are run largely by people that bounce back and forth between the New York Times and the Washington Post and Random House or whatever it is. And um, so they, you know, they, they are going to publish what they want to, what they want to hear, and what they think they're the people that they go to dinner with want to hear. And so that means it, it's tough for the um, for conservative ones. So we started this new company a couple of years ago, and then um, I was sort of prophetic. I mean, it's gotten the woke woke business and the cancel culture has gotten much worse, as of course, as you know, in the last year or so. And so we're seeing um, manuscript after manuscript and proposal after proposal come in. That um, you know, are they're they're wonderful books in many cases. They need to be published, and we're happy to do it. Uh, we're talking again with Al Regnery and his uh, his uh, company's RepublicBookPublishers.com, Republic Book Publishers. And if you go there right now, I'm looking at these books, you know, 19th Hijacker by James Reston Jr., guys, really famous. Uh, the Decline of Nations, Joseph F. Johnston Jr., very well-known, very well-regarded uh, lawyer and and now historian. So, but, but you know, I, I looked at one of the books, is Casey Mulligan on You're Hired about Trump. It uh, Why, Al, Al, in the business of, of making money, there's at least 75 million people that run through fire for Trump. Why don't they want to sell to them? I mean, look, CNN made money, printed money for four years. Now they got rid of Trump or participated in getting rid of Trump. And now they're, I don't know if they're losing money, but they're losing uh, ratings. I would have thought the natural adju- natural adjustment was to make money off that group, as you just described. But somehow in this environment, it's you shut them off, even if you're biting off your nose to spite your face. You know, part of it, Ed, is the fact that they don't want to go to a dinner party. Kids to be criticized in school or their wife comes back and said, you know, I was at the country club today and they're all on my case because you're doing this or that. And I think that even even if if they think they should do it. They just don't want to go there. And that's uh, the, the left recognizes that. I mean, that's part of what cancel culture is all about, is that we can mm-hmm. we can criticize them, we can call them racists, we can call their kid racists or whatever it is, and they will go away. And I just think that, um, that that's a big part of it. Again, we're talking with Al Regnery, and again, the website is republicbookpublishers.com. It's the Republic Book Publisher, if you go find it. Lots of great titles. Um, Al, is the um, it's also true that it's harder to make money, right? I mean, in, in, in a different period, people bought books. Now they buy e-books. Uh, maybe they don't read as much. I don't know if any of this is true. I'm just kind of brainstorming. I mean, the business has gotten more complicated as people's habits have changed. Is Am I am I right on that? I'm, I'm saying it like I know it. I don't know if I know it, though. No, it never was very good. Um, you know, and, and <laughs> the publishing business is tough. There's no question. 
Uh-huh. Um, you know, you, you, books are hard to sell. Uh, they're expensive to do. Um, you know, you've, I mean, from the time you somebody writes one, the editorial process, and then the marketing, and all those other things. Yeah, I mean, there, there some kinds of books sell well. I mean, you know, romance novels you sell a lot of them, that sort of thing. But a book, a nonfiction book on a serious topic, um, you know, if you can sell ten or twelve, fifteen thousand copies, that's a huge amount. And you're living in mm-hmm. a city. There's fifteen thousand people within half a mile. I mean, it's, you know, it's not it's not a big right. Place. And um, it's a it, it is a very it can be for the small size that it is. It can be extremely influential. I mean, books change through the world, no question about it. A big a new nonfiction book on something can revolutionize a whole um, philosophy, a whole area, whatever else um, they can disclose things and. You know, a lot of things flow from that, but the book itself makes maybe a little money, maybe not. Um, and so it's, yeah, it's, it's still that way. Um, e-books are a good thing for everybody. I mean, you don't have to print them for one thing, so that expense is much lower, and they're, they're cheaper. Right. And, um, this, that's a good thing. And, um, you know, I have always said that if you look at anybody's library, there are an awful lot of books that never got read. And I thought if a publisher said, oh, I only had to sell books that people had really read, then you would go broke because people give <laughs> presents and whatever and you put them on the shelf. And, um, right. you know, from that standpoint, that's a good thing. But, um, so yeah, it's, yeah it, 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 I mean, even if you go back and read about when Charles Dickens was publishing things, you know, 150 years ago, it was still tough. So it's not, mm-hmm. from that standpoint, it, it hasn't really changed a lot. Uh, again, we're talking with Al Regnery, uh, founder and uh, leader, along with uh, Eric Campman of uh, Republic Book Publishers. If you go to their website, republicbookpublishers.com, you'll see all these different books, lots of different topics. I mentioned Old Abe. I've had a bunch of these folks on, but I want to ask you about one of the books. I don't I think, I don't ever think I had this guy on. His name is Alec Klein, and he wrote a book called Aftermath about being, oh, by the way, Jesse Lee Peterson, who's been on the show, who's really a great uh, kind of um, uh, voice right now. He's got a book, The Antidote, Healing America from the Poison of Hate and blame and victimhood. I want to make sure to mention that. But so Klein does this book that's really actually on wrongful accusations and this sort of tumult of his life turning upside down. It's it's actually, uh, Al, kind of haunting for me. I, I I got a copy. I think Dean Drazen, your guy, sent me one. And I thought, oh, what's this about? And I started in. And I was like, whoa, this is really, uh, it turns your stomach. And in this environment, because he's, he's, he's falsely accused of something and his life's falling apart and how he handles it and what happens. And it's not exactly a um, doesn't turn out great. I mean, all along the way, it's just it's devastating, and yet it feels like what they're doing to a lot of people in a way. Because even Klein, I think he had done something. He hadn't been perfect. I think he says that he like his marriage or whatever. So it wasn't like he's saying, "Look at me, I'm a good guy," and getting uh, persecuted. Well, we got these people being persecuted now. I mean, it feels like we're at a moment where that book fits this moment a little bit more than ever you oh, might have God, expected really, when you in, got it a few years ago. In Klein's. Klein's case, I mean, he, there were accusations against him. He was a professor at Northwestern University, and they ultimately basically forced him out of school, and the accusations were not accurate at all. Um, but one right. of the things is that, that they saw that this basically destroyed their life. I mean, it, the, 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 uh, the culture is so acidic now that people hate each other so much that if they can destroy, destroy somebody's life because they disagree with them, they'll do it. 
You know, somebody I was talking to the other day said in politics, it used to be that you disagreed with somebody and they went to dinner again uh, together. Now you right, disagree with right. somebody and they want you dead. You know, they don't want to even talk to you. They, they think you should you should never be allowed to say anything again. And that's part of the whole thing. If you can destroy somebody's life with going after them personally, they'll do it because they disagree with you. And that's a terrible thing. It is. It's the worst yeah, thing for democracy. Yeah. It's the worst thing for culture. You know, we, this is the, 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 we can't survive with this. It's got to get back where we can talk to people that we disagree with. And, you know, um, then let's say, then have a drink together. Yeah, well, it's um, it's uh, it's very good. Uh, I've, I've told you, and I'll run me truth in advertising is a friend of mine. So, but Republic Book Publishers is really good, really valuable. Thanks, Al, for coming on. RepublicBookPublishers dot com. We'll put it up on social media. We'll share, and we'll have some more authors on pretty soon. Appreciate it very much, Al. Thanks so, thanks so much for having me on. All right, we'll take a break, everybody. Be right back. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro America Report. Welcome back. Welcome back, everybody. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. I'm not sure that our listeners, I've often, I don't dwell on it a lot. I don't come back to it a lot. But, you know, I grew up in New Jersey and I went to high school in Jersey City. I used to be able to stand on the corner of Grand and Warren and down one block, you could see the Statue of Liberty. And down the other way, you could see the down Grand, you could see the the Twin Towers. And so 9-11 was a huge deal. I happened to be on the top floor of the uh, Marriott Hotel in St. Louis, Missouri, getting ready to go over to the largest courthouse in America at the time. The Eagleton Courthouse, which was as we watched the towers get hit, um, then we heard Katie Kirk or someone say other targets uh, could be uh, courthouses like the Eagleton ta- Courthouse or whatever. So we didn't, needless to say, I was clerking at the time. We didn't have a court that day. But that, one of the reasons I've been so drawn to James Reston Jr.'s uh, new book, which is called The 19th Hijacker, which is out this year, which is the 20th anniversary, of course, 9 11, it's because of my own uh, sort of history. Uh, there's a buddy of mine from college that was up in the towers and was lost and uh, lots of folks that I knew through other people. So oh, it's terrible for those of you that are younger and my kids are all too young to remember it and at all and weren't born yet. And they, 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 the sense of it was extraordinary. But uh, James Reston Jr.'s book is an extraordinary book, uh, Republic Book Publishers, The 19th Hijacker. And we're welcome, Jim, back to talk about the book. And as we get ready for 9-11, 20th anniversary, I got to think, you know, it's a couple months away, but we're going to start to see a, a kind of rejuvenation, uh, remembrance of all that time. So, Jim, it's good timing for the book. How's the response to it been? Well, the response is, is definitely bubbling, Ed. As you said, this is, uh, we're a couple of months away from the actual anniversary. You know, I think this is a very interesting anniversary, uh, much more interesting than the 10th anniversary of 9-11. In 10 years ago, uh, the event really hadn't been digested into um into the American consciousness. I mean, people just didn't really want to talk about it, much less uh, anything about uh, who the attackers were and so so forth. With the 20th anniversary, I think we're, I, I hope that the country's consciousness has opened up some. This, this is an event that absolutely changed American history. Uh, we're still living with the implications of 9-11. So there's a lot to focus on um, with uh, the coming September 11th. 
Uh, again, we're talking with James Reston Jr. His new book is The 19th Hijacker, out from uh, Republic Book Publishers. And the premise of the book is that one of the hijackers, the 19th, is a description. Um, and it's a, it's, a, it's a fictional account uh, based on uh, a lot of the record and a lot of the what was going on. So it's uh, Jim Reston kind of, kind of uh, imagining what was going on. But there was one of the hijackers did have a girlfriend who was a, a, existed and exists somewhere, although she's off the grid now. And, and when Lee Hamilton and others were doing the 9-11 commission, um, I guess it was afterwards, he, he especially encouraged uh, Jim to dig into this because it's just, you know, trying to put a context to how did these people do this? Why did it happen? And um, and I know uh, you were talking, you and I were talking off the air, Jim, that uh, there's been real interest in this story as either a, a movie for a major movie or uh, television and especially in Europe because, well, walk us through a part, a chunk of this was happening of this guy's life, one of the 19th hijacker was in Germany. And then do you, in the book, there's a sense that he may, you know, be drawn to this affair, love, uh, maybe this woman that he loves and pulled away. I know you're, you're, you're working with uh, imagining it, but w- tell us about this character and how, how he fit into that, to the whole thing. Well, we're talking about the hijacker pilot who ultimately brought the plane down in Shanksville, uh, Pennsylvania. And, right. you know, what Amer- what the American people know about Flight 93 and the Shanksville event is almost 100% only about the heroic revolt of the passengers. And right. almost nothing about who the attackers were and why they were doing it and so forth. Uh, all of the perpetrators, all 19 perpetrators uh, for New York, uh, Washington, and Shanksville are dead, of course. And so there was no way to sort out as a nonfiction uh, question how they were sucked into this. The one in Shanksville is by far the most interesting of the 19th terrorists because he was very pulled by this love affair with this woman in Germany and really had a choice coming up to August of uh, 2001 as to whether he would go forward with the operation or he would uh, bail out and uh, flee somewhere with this uh, this woman. That was the germ of the novel for me, that, uh, you know, this uh, was an opportunity to imagine how somebody who was somewhat in conflict was coming up to a choice, how he got recruited, how he got sucked into this whole thing, and what was the level of his commitment. There were, these are all novelistic themes, and um, the novel itself is told through the, the lens of the girlfriend herself that finds out a lot more about him after 9-11 itself. Well, and one of the things, again, we're talking with uh, James Reston Jr.'s book is The 19th Hijacker. And Jim, one of the things about this that's funny is, you you know, it's easy to imagine really bad actors as almost inhuman, you know, not superhuman, but subhuman, right? So Hitler was subhuman in our head, right? And, uh, And Charles Manson looks and sounds subhuman. But, you know, one of the really haunting things is that um, most of these people, well, most well, all of them were born and they were a baby once and they were walking around and they were, you know, and and so in some ways you by humanizing them, you can sort of it can, someone could can say, oh, well, you know, don't don't these are animals, you know, I don't give them any 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 sense of any uh, any uh, positive thing. On the other hand, it's it, it's 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 um, it shows it gives you a way to say, wait. How could that that didn't just happen like 
in a movie it, where like Superman was. It happened in human life and why, right? And what and what does it yeah. mean when someone can actually take that next step, whether it's to murder someone or fly a plane like that or the same thing? And and that's an interesting sort of challenge. And and I know with your many books, I mean you've written written nonfiction as, and and, and this, but in this one you're kind of you're you're sort of walking along that line. Do does anybody get mad at you so far? Do, do they get mad at you and say don't well, make it human? Let me just say about what what you said this is a very very interesting theme and something I've thought deeply about that that if if as a writer you you set, set out to write a story and the protagonist the main protagonist is absolutely an evil monster at the very beginning there is no right. way to go with that story there is no way that we can be interested in that person because he's just a flat line and um in this case this is this is a character and this is accurate in the history that the Shanksville pilot was very much in conflict about the whole thing and drawn in two very strong uh strong different directions and so mm-hmm. that that really uh, uh afforded me an opportunity to to really try to imagine what the trajectory of this life was like from a fine family in Beirut to higher education in Hamburg where he got into the uh, circle of the prime conspirator Muhammad Atta uh, and where he uh, trained in Afghanistan but also came back to Germany and was in love with this woman. So, um, so it was an evolution. It was a process. He evolved and in the end he became a mass murderer but um, only in the end and not mm-hmm. with, with great enthusiasm. Is uh, did anybody get mad at the book? Like, did anybody write, write to you and say, "Don't make this son of a gun be remotely nice"? Because I mean, and by the end, you don't feel good about him, so it's not like it's you know, you still, as you say, he's still a mass murderer. But but I, I wondered if anybody was like, I don't even want to think a nice thought early on in, at any point. Did you have any re- reaction like that? Yes, I mean, um, last week a friend of mine told me that they, they had been talking about the book with somebody, and the, the, that person said. Well, why should I read a book about a, uh, a terrorist who was a mass, right. mass murderer? Well, um, there were only um, 19 people involved in, in an event that changed American history. That's the starting point why someone might be interested. But secondarily, uh, if we're talking about how to protect ourselves from um, Islamic terrorists in the future, we, by George, better know you know what motivates them, how they get sucked into all of this and and if we don't uh we're that much more vulnerable i would talk again with james reston jr the book is the 19th hijacker and uh, jim one last question i just have about 30 seconds but now that COVID is sort of passed did you envision being and then the anniversary coming do you envision that you're going to be out on the you know uh, will there be a book tour i mean do you expect it's that kind of thing are you are you expecting more well, attention I've like been, that um, you know, I've been very much out there already, and it's going to get more and more intense. It kind of uh, has its crescendo when I'm speaking in Hoboken, um, New Jersey, your state, um, which is right across the river from uh, from Manhattan. Yeah. And, and no doubt there would have been hundreds and hundreds of people on the ridge at Hoboken watching those, uh, those yeah. buildings fall. So that's going to be kind of the climax of my virtual tour. But, but that's the issue going to be an in-person event. When is that? The mayor of Hoboken is supposed to be coming and so forth. So so yeah, I think it's going to get more and more t- intense in the coming days and weeks. Hmm. 
Well, good. Well, I look for, we'll look forward to having you back again right before then. And uh, I got to run. We're talking again, James Reston Jr., the 19th hijacker, Republic Book Publishers. Thanks very much, Jim. Thanks for your interest, Ed. All right. We'll take a break, everybody, and be right back. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Back in a moment. This is the Phyllis Schlafly Report, a daily commentary continuing the conservative pro-family legacy of Phyllis Schlafly. Now the president of Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, Ed Martin. Republicans have a golden opportunity to broadly expand their influence by coming out strongly against the transgender revolution sweeping our nation. Donald Trump recognized this quickly and made several public comments to that effect. Sadly, as on many issues, Trump's comments were stronger than that of Republicans in Congress who should be taking the lead. Rather than meekly objecting, the GOP should champion this issue and tap into the support of most Americans. We don't need boys competing in girls' sports. And we certainly don't need children getting dangerous sex change surgeries. The transgender invasion is jeopardizing the GOP as the Olympic champion turned transgender woman, Caitlyn Jenner, announced her bid for California governor as a Republican. Many Republicans may salivate at the opportunity of capturing the governor's seat, as Arnold Schwarzenegger famously did nearly two decades ago. And they may hope that Jenner could appeal to crossover voters in La La Land. Conservatives should not be fooled into sacrificing our principles in the hopes of getting more votes. Americans care much more about protecting women than they do about Caitlyn Jenner. In January, a bill signed into law by California's soon-to-be-recalled Governor Gavin Newsom began requiring the state prison system to ask every individual entering its custody to specify their personal pronouns and gender identity. Jumping at the invitation, 261 California prison inmates have requested transfers to prisons aligning with their gender identity, with 255 of them biological males who say they now identify as women. California requires that prisons process these requests, as do laws in Massachusetts and Connecticut. As if this wasn't bad enough, California Democrats are also pushing legislation that would impose fines against department stores which separate clothing and toys by gender. The Republican Party should seize on this unique moment in which the entirety of the Democrat Party has so hyperextended themselves to the left that a sideways look would be enough to make their whole revolution collapse on itself. Normal Americans don't want men in women's prisons. They don't want boys in girls' locker rooms. And they don't want male athletes competing in girls' sports. This has been the Phyllis Schlafly Report with Ed Martin, president of Phyllis Schlafly Eagles. For 50 years, Mrs. Schlafly promoted grassroots efforts to rally conservatives. Today, you can harness the power of social media by going to phyllisschlafly.com and sharing these commentaries with friends across the country. Get started at phyllisschlafly.com. Thanks for listening and join us again for the Phyllis Schlafly Report. Welcome back. Welcome back, everybody. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Let's wrap things up and do a little um, do a little uh, debunking, a little debunking, okay? And this one's this, uh, just had to put this under the category of um, stories about something that you knew was true, but you hadn't seen covered in a long time, okay? So this is the, this is the story. Again, it's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Go to ProAmericaReport.com, sign up for the daily email, and get what you need to know there each morning, uh, Monday through Friday at uh, 8 a.m. East Coast, uh, 5 a.m. Pacific, and also see these great interviews over there. But um, So after the November election, there was briefly 
a discussion of um, voting machines. And then it was described uh, by the media as not not an appropriate conversation. Now, you have to sort of do a do a little bit of digging. And so actually some of it's disappeared and you have to go into the Wayback Machine, which is a, a device to search the Internet for stuff that was there and is gone. Um, but if you do, you'll find that there were symposia and uh, essays written, research documents on the question of can we secure our voting machines in America. And these all happened after the 2016 election because the narrative was Russia, Russia, Russia hacking the election. And so there were lots of essays. The one I'm most familiar with and, and lots of research was a lengthy document by the University of Pennsylvania Wharton that looked at the uh, the ability for machines to be secured. And they basically said, hard to see how they could be secured. I'm, 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 I'm a little bit overstating it, but they basically said there's lots of holes in this. Well, come now, comes now, uh, an essay that is out on uh, Politico. And the essay on Politico is about, well, it's about the election machines. And it's, it's the type title is One Man's Quest to Break Open the Secretive World of American Voting Machines. Now, let me tell you, I was there at the birthing of the voting machines because after 2000, the mess of the 2000 election with lots of different kinds of ways that there were games being played in St. Louis, where I was living at the time, the games were that there was a judge who decided to leave the polls open. The judge in, in St. Louis City, a judge about two hours before the polls closed, I think it was that close, but said, we're going to keep the polls open not till 7 but till nine. And within minutes of that decision, there were robo-dials and calls going into the community saying, we got buses, we got people, don't quit, keep coming. And everyone could, well, you know, it seemed kind of coordinated and all that. So, but after that, there was also, of course, Florida. There was a bunch of places, but what I was most familiar with that. And so there was lots of questions about, and then and, and Kit Bond, then Senator Kit Bond, uh, went and dug into it. And he was one of the lead um, proponents, at least he was one of the proponents of the Help America Vote Act, which basically gave a lot of money for local jurisdictions and states to upgrade their systems. But it gave some strings. And one of the strings which they had to get out of the punch card, because the punch card was what was so problematic in Florida and other places. Hard to tell, you know, hanging chads, all that stuff. Well, so most jurisdictions by 2005, when I was made chairman of the Board of Elections in St. Louis, they had money to go buy machines. And they were buying scanner machines, and they were buying electric machines, and they were trying to address how you could do, say, voting if you're handy capped or blind with these different machines. There was a lot of complexity and a lot of money. And so there's a lot of companies involved. And the companies that were involved were Diebold was one, ES&S, and uh, um, some other names that have since changed a couple times. Dominion didn't exist by that name. But there was a rush. It was a gold rush. And the companies, some of them, Diebold came out of banking, you know, and credit cards and others. And then after the 2005, 6, 7, um, they all combined. They went from like five or six machine companies to two or three, maybe three total. But there really was at the time, even then, it was hard to understand all about them. You know, you were sort of getting up to speed. And what we kind of settled on in our uh, commission when we purchased machines was had to have a paper trail, which could be verified. It couldn't only be a machine and had to be off the internet, right? It had to be unplugged from the wall. Um, and and that, was, that was the two things that we... And so we went ahead. Well, again, this Politico article, which is interesting, it's coming up now, and I wonder why. Maybe it's because it wants to cast doubt on the next elections. Um, maybe that's it. But it's a story of a guy who went to University of Penn and was a very bright guy 
guy. They called him one of the you know super whiz kids, and he got a, a degree from the Wharton School. And he dug into this question of the election systems, the, the machines. And what he basically says in this lengthy essay is, you just can't figure it out. And it's kind of strange that something as important of elections is really secretive, and you really can't get into it. You, you know, now we've heard this by the way in jurisdictions where there were questions about the machines. People would say, can we see the source code? Can we review? None of that's allowed. Proprietary is what they say. But you end up with a secretive system without transparency in one of the most important aspects of American life. And so, again, where was this conversation, this research in this political article, a political article three, four, five months ago? Because that's all a lot of people were saying. And there's lots of people that are persuasive about saying, hey, these systems, well, they, they at least were hackable. And I don't think anybody denies that now, right? There's no system that's not hackable. Even if you say, well, the machine, the counting machine's not plugged into the wall. The poll books are. The poll books that actually do the database, you know, do the registration. But but no matter what, there's there's no one that thinks that everything is, you know, we've now seen pipelines hacked and governments hacked and all the rest. So where was this article before? Because you weren't allowed to. In fact, Dominion has sued who? Sidney Powell sued Mike Lindell. I don't know if it's sued Rudy Giuliani, but Dominion has sued a bunch of people for just raising questions. Well, not that's more. They've said that they've defamed them. But I got to tell you, in a defamation, I think I'd get the political article out. If I'm Mike Lindell, I, my lawyers, I'd say, well, let's talk to this guy as an expert witness about how how secretive and therefore how lacking in transparency and therefore how much doubt is raised about these processes. So I'll put this up on social media. But here's the thing. If we're going to have another election in just a year, and in some places, New Jersey and Virginia, you're going to have elections in four months. Don't we need some transparency on these um, election systems? Don't we have to have it? Isn't that a federal issue? Almost a Department of Justice issue. We'll see. We'll see. All right, we got to run, everybody. Thank you, as always, to our great producer, Anoa, as well as uh, Joanna, who helps us book the great guests. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Talk to you then. This is the Pro-America Report on The Answer, San Diego.